0: This Mortal Coil So who amongst you is fascinated by all things ancient Egyptian? There are millions of people around the world who can't get enough of ancient Egypt. And if you happen to holiday in Sydney over summer, you might have caught the Ramses exhibition at the Australian Museum. It's on until the middle of May. It's billed as an exhibition 3,000 years in the making. It's got more than 180 ancient Egyptian treasures. I know there's been a big exhibition in Canberra as well. So it feels like the summer of ancient Egypt in Australia. Now, part of the collection covers aspects of the afterlife and the ways in which ancient Egyptians prepared for death. And like many aspects of ancient Egyptian culture, it turns out there were many rituals and also backup plans to reach the afterlife. Now, my guest is Dr. Connie Lord, a forensic Egyptologist who's been a member of excavation teams in Egypt and the UK. And Connie's been our guest quite a few times in this week in history, telling us ancient Egyptian stories as well. Hello, Connie. Welcome
1: back. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to say the last time we spoke,
0: we actually talked about the life of Ramses II and you were telling me how excited you were to go and see the exhibition at the Australian Museum. Did it live up to your expectations?
1: It did. I have to say, I mean, I've, I've a lot of the objects, all of the objects come from the Egyptian Museum, so I had seen them before, but it was beautifully put together and it never fails. It doesn't matter if I've seen it once or 10 times, there's always an object that just, you know, you can't take your eyes off. Oh. And I think for me, it was the sarcophagus of Senegem, which was just beautiful in a room kind of by itself. And I, I just stood there for hours looking at it. And I've probably seen it at least four times before. Were you literally there for hours, Connie? Oh, okay. It seemed like hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no. We were there for a couple of hours, but we had to um, get through. I'm going back to the exhibition. I need to see it again. Um, But we had to get to the virtual reality experience. So that cut the exhibition a little bit short for us. Um, I could have spent three hours there, but it was more like a couple. But the virtual reality, um, the fly-through Abu Simbel was just so much fun. Um, I recommend everyone do that as well as the exhibition. Uh, Dr. Connie Lord is here. Now, um, maybe you've got some questions
0: about ancient Egypt and the afterlife. If you've got some, maybe we'll throw them at Connie because she knows uh, much about ancient Egypt. So we're going to focus specifically on the afterlife and its rituals tonight, Connie. So what is the afterlife? How did the ancient Egyptians understand that idea? Um, It's
1: not really a simple question because one thing about the ancient Egyptians, they started with the concept and then as time went on, they added to it, and they could actually have opposing concepts all at the same time for the same thing. Um, so the ancient, the afterlife really started, and we're looking at once Egypt had become a unified state. So once we kind of had pharaohs and a centralized government, um, before that, you know it's a bit, it's a bit hard to tell, uh, but in the beginning, say in the old kingdom, when the pyramids were built, the afterlife was really a royal prerogative. Um, it wasn't really the only way you could be anywhere near an afterlife was your connection to the king. So in the beginning, the afterlife for the king was kind of in, in the stars, in the sky. And he would ascend up into the sky where he would then spend the his afterlife um, hanging out with all the other gods. And then... As time went by, this idea of an afterlife um, became more accessible to other people. Firstly, the the officials, the royal officials, um, the wealthy people. And as time went on, more and more people um, felt that they could access an afterlife as well. So it's called... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, at one point then,
0: would, would all Egyptians have aspired to the afterlife or felt that they had the tools necessary to get them there?
1: They would, all Egyptians would believe they would have some form of afterlife. Now, how that quite took place for the poorer um, people, we're not quite sure because we don't have the written information. We have what we can see in their their graves, um, but it's a bit harder. What we do know is mainly the kind of officials, the literate part, or the, uh, the people that could afford coffins and artificial un- embalming and things like that. Um so they definitely expected an after- afterlife by the time we get to the Middle Kingdom, say around two thousand BCE.
0: Now, the average lifespan was fairly short, although Ramses II, I think that we, people thought he'd live to be at least a hundred. Um but was that part of why people wanted the idea of the afterlife, because life on, on earth was actually so short?
1: Look, it might have it might have played a, a part in it, definitely, but one of the things um people tend to believe is that the Egyptians were obsessed with death. But this is not really true. They loved life. Like most societies, they really loved life. And it helped them to think that death wasn't the end. It was just one of these changes that, that they had to go through. They saw human life as a whole lot of changes like birth, um, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, old age, death. And then death was just this change into this eternal life.
0: So how would they have imagined afterlife? I mean, you said that the king or the pharaoh would have got to sort of hang out in the stars with the other gods. By the time most more Egyptians aspired to the afterlife, is that what they would have imagined as well?
1: No. Um, it's There's this term that gets thrown about um, once we get past this kind of the, the pyramids. It's called democratisation of uh, the afterlife. Now, this is a bit... It's a bit of a misnomer because even though more people thought they had access or believed they had access to an afterlife, it doesn't mean they had the same afterlife as the king. The king was still, you know, different and a higher echelon of society in every way. But the the ordinary Egyptian or the the officials, there were kind of two, again, these com- um, opposing ideas, but they, at the same time, the king was up in the stars with the gods um, there's also the underworld, which was the realm of the god Osiris. And this underworld could also be called the field of reeds, which was just basically like Egyptian life. It had crops, it had, you know, things grown to eat, and people lived very much the way uh, they would have in life, but everything was better. There'd be none of the problems or the illnesses or the the issues that they would have had in life. Um, we know from the, the texts, the funerary texts, that the crops were incredibly high and abundant. So I suppose in a a very simplistic way, eternal life was very much like um, ordinary life, daily life, uh, but just better. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Ordinary life, but just better. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing if you had a headache or if you got migraines in real life, or you had, you were missing a toe or something like that, when you went into the afterlife, none of that would be a problem. No mm-hmm. more headaches, no more problems, everything, lots of food, um, you know, just, mm. just what you'd wish for.
0: Mm. So was there a, an equivalent of, of hell or somewhere you didn't want to go?
1: Uh, the equivalent of hell would probably be not having an afterlife. So that would be the greatest punishment you could have, not to be allowed into the afterlife.
0: So who would have been precluded from the afterlife?
1: well they did have a lot of backup plans so a lot of people um you know even if they'd been bad during life there were ways they could get into it but we do have some examples um where you couldn't get into the afterlife and this is when they'd done they'd been um disloyal to the king to into the <clears throat> to the where they were actually trying to kill it where there assassination assassinations so we know Pepe the first, um someone tried to kill him and the bodyguards if you look in their tombs they have lines through certain body parts like their hands or their head so either they could go into the afterlife without their hands you couldn't really get to the afterlife if you didn't have a head. Um, Ramses III he was also assassinated and that was by one of his sons um, by a, a lesser wife. And he was allowed to commit suicide, which would also mean he wouldn't get into the afterlife. So you had to do something pretty bad, and it was usually against the king. Uh, but most people, even if they had if they weren't the best during life, they had some backup plans to get there. Um, after death. Uh,
0: Dr. Connie Lord is here, forensic Egyptologist, and uh, we're talking about the ancient Egyptian afterlife in this mortal coil tonight. And if you've got questions about the ancient Egyptian afterlife, feel free to uh, ping them through on the SMS 0467 Okay, so what were the basics then that you had to achieve to reach the afterlife? You had to be a good person, but
1: then you had to, uh, was the preparation very important? The preparation was important, but you didn't actually have to be a good person because, as I said, you had some backup um, just in case that, that came up. Uh, but one of the things we all know about is mummification. So this preservation of the body was very important. And this was because the ancient Egyptians believed that a, a person was made up of physical and non-physical elements. So you have, of course, the body, but then there are also these parts that you needed to be an individual called the car and the bar. So the car was like a life force i suppose you could call it the spirit um and the bar was like the soul or it it was uh, you know and an also a, a vital part of an individual now in death the car and the bar could actually live ind- independently of the body but it needed they needed to be nourished the same way that um we do like they needed to eat they needed to drink so it was very important and they needed the body to do this so it's really important that the bar and the car had a body that they could go back to and uh, regenerate. So that's why the body was so so important to be preserved. Um, There's also the tomb and the coffin. These are protective measures, not just physically protective, but also spiritually protective. And the coffin also worked as a cocoon. So the person could be reborn into this eternal life with uh, no problems, into this kind of idealised, transformed figure. Um, there were lots of things that were put in the tomb, like food, uh, water, well, not water, they liked wine and beer. Um, and these sorts of things all went into the afterlife with an individual to make sure they were nourished, they were protected and they could be reborn. Yeah. So Connie, what, for example,
0: if you were, um, killed in a fire and burnt to, you know, unrecognisable ashes, is your chance of getting the afterlife gone because you don't have a body?
1: Um well we don't i can't say i've got any examples of that but if something say something happened to the mum the mummified body so a person is mummified they're put into the tomb but the egyptians were very aware that tombs were raided and robbed um by people that knew them or people of their time and so they had this thing that a coffin could stand in for a body or a shabti, a little funerary statue, that could stand in for a body, or even the paintings on the wall could stand in for the body. So they did have these backup plans um, that could all come to fruition through magic. Uh, Magic was a very important part of Egyptian religion and Egyptian funerary rites. And while our minds tend to separate magic and functionality or magic and practicality, the Egyptians had no such problems. These two things were very much together, so the practical and the spiritual worked really well and magic would, would help all these things come to life. And that, as I said, they always got there somehow.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's just backup plan after backup plan for the ancient Egyptians. So the magic, I think there were spells, weren't there, that were put on coffins. What can you tell us about those and, and their evolution?
1: Well, there's a funerary text, and we actually have a lot of um, evidence for funerary texts. The first lot of funerary texts that we know of are called the pyramid texts. And this is at the time in the Old Kingdom when the afterlife was really a royal prerogative. Uh, so these were written on tomb, the uh, burial chamber and the antechamber, the the pyramids of the the pharaohs, um, from the Fifth Dynasty to the Eighth Dynasty, and um, they're all kind of aimed at helping the protecting the king and getting him into the up to the stars to so he can be with his. Um, fellow gods because he's a god on earth but then he becomes a god in the heavens when he dies then after that we have this moving into something called the coffin text which i think you're talking about and this is the first time that non-royal people can think about an afterlife or really believe that there's a possibility for an afterlife so the coffin texts are really a set of spells that are aimed at helping the person get to the afterlife Um, helping them on their journey to the afterlife, how to get over the obstacles, um, and how to have a happy eternity. And then probably the one that most people know is the Book of the Dead, and this comes around the second intermediate period, the the New Kingdom. Um, We see it often on papyrus, but it could also be written on bandages, on tomb walls, on coffins. And this is where we have about 200 spells um, that A lot of them are based or the same as the pyramid texts and the coffin texts, but they're instructions um, how to access the magical power to help the dead um, in their passage into the afterlife and therefore have this happy existence forever.
0: I've got Dr Connie Lord, uh, forensic Egyptologist with me. So the the wall paintings, which was sort of the the backups, um, do they still exist today? Can you see some?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, They're they're magnificent. They're right throughout Egypt, but some of the most beautiful ones are in Thebes or Luxor. It's called the Valley of the Nobles and um, the Tombs of the Nobles. And they're just some of them you can walk in and it looks like they were painted yesterday.
0: That's extraordinary.
1: Uh, Now, uh, did animals also
0: um, get to go to the afterlife? Because um, Helen says, I saw the exhibition. I was fascinated by all the mummified cats. You wouldn't mummify them unless you were preparing them for the afterlife, would
1: you? Actually, there were animals that were certainly given an afterlife and it was believed that animals had an afterlife, but the mummified cats had another purpose as well. So one of the things about the mummified animals of ancient Egypt is that Egypt was the only country... Or the only culture to purposely mummify animals. Um, you know, other cultures have mummified people, but Egyptians were the only ones that intentionally mummified animals. Now, the big three that they mummified were cats, dogs, and ibis. And they mummified any animal uh, mouse, fish, lizard, snake um gazelle you name it they mummified it but the three big ones were the ibis the dogs and the cats and the dog cat and ibis were all connected to certain gods so the cat was very connected to Bastet or Sekhmet and Bastet and Sekhmet had this role of being um they they were kind of a mother god or a fertility god Sekhmet was also the god of plague and pestilence. So a lot of the doctors were priests of Sekhmet. So what Sekhmet did, her priests could actually try and undo. Um, The Ibis were connected to the god Thoth, the god of writing and wisdom. And then the dogs were connected to the jackal god Anubis. Mm. So you would, if you wanted to go and ask a question of a god or you wanted um, a personal kind of connection with a god, you would go and you would buy a mummified cat. You would present it at the temple. You would ask Bastet a question or ask for um, some kind of protection. You would offer the mummified cat and that cat would be able to take that message straight to the god. Wow. And so
0: there was a business in mummifying cats then. You'd go to the mummified cat shop
1: yeah it actually would have been a huge economic business when you think about it because in Saqqara there's there were a whole lot of Saqqara is quite close to it's around Cairo hmm. it has a lot of pyramids of the old kingdom um, but it also had a huge animal cult uh, kind of area so we've got they found millions of ibis there millions of dogs um, and cats And so we're talking millions, not hundreds, and this is just one part of Egypt. So all over Egypt, there were millions and millions of animal mummies being made for people to present at temples. So it was a huge business. You've got the people who raised them. You've got the people who mummified them. You've got the people who made the bandages, who made the clay pots. You know, it was a huge economic business. And when we go, I don't know if um, many of the listeners have been to Saqqara, it's very quiet, you know, it's lovely, there's there's the ruins and you can wander around, it's beautiful. But in ancient Egyptian times, this would have been a bustling kind of city, an economic um, powerhouse in many ways. So it's interesting. What we see is not what would have been there. As I said, there would have been people everywhere, animals everywhere. And it would have it would have been really a happening place to be, if you like, that sort of thing,
0: and I guess a dead cat would have never been left to rot on the side of the road. Someone would have scooped it up to make a mummy out of it because there was money well, to be made.
1: Cats, I don't know if it worked like that. I've often um suggested to my cat that she could be more use than she <laughs> is, but uh, that doesn't seem to be working, but cats were very they really were um revered uh, I can tell you that hasn't changed much in the since ancient Egypt has stopped um, but cats were looked after uh, they were definitely revered and you know there's even a story that in Roman times if anyone killed a cat um, they had to shave off their eyebrows and they were very much in the you know in the doghouse um, pardon the not very good pun there <laughs> but yeah so cats were important um, but these usually they would have been um, mummified by priests or you know it it was a business. It wasn't something that individuals did.
0: Yeah, wow. Uh, Dr. Connie Lord, forensic Egyptologist, is here. Now, Ian wonders, is there any survival of these kind of ancient Egyptian spiritual beliefs that are ongoing today or have they, the ancient beliefs of the afterlife all gone?
1: I think we can see a lot of beliefs that maybe don't come straight from ancient Egypt, but I think it's the human condition to want to believe that there's something after death. So I don't, I don't actually, and you know, there's, there's grieving, there's funerals, there's, you know, there's this period of denial and everyone, I think that's a human condition. I don't think it's just from ancient Egypt. It might be in slightly different ways. And we have a lot more evidence for ancient Egypt for how they, you know, how these beliefs in death than we do in life in some ways. Um, But I don't know if the actual beliefs from ancient Egypt survive, but I think the beliefs that are common throughout the human condition, um, you can see those everywhere. Well, was ancient Egypt
0: the oldest uh, sort of recording of these ideas about the afterlife, or do we have ideas about it going back further?
1: Um, I don't, I have to admit, I don't know. I'm, I'm very much focused on Egypt, but it would have to be some of the first recording because writing, the ancient Egyptian writing system, and this is really how we learn things, um, we've got Grave's before the time of writing, but it's really hearing things in their own words that tell us more. Um, It it would have to be some of the earliest, definitely. Now,
0: um, let's go back to um, our our death rituals, because when someone dies, I guess they've got to be bandaged and and everything. Can you describe the rituals that happen after someone died? How long would it be be before they'd actually get to the
1: afterlife? Um. Well, once they someone died, uh, they it would be seventy days until they got to the the funeral. Um, then they had to, you know, at the same time they would have been going through these these obstacles and this journey into the afterlife. So you've got the physical body, but you've also got this kind of spiritual journey at the same time. But when someone died, they'd be taken to the embalmers by the family. Um, They would be washed in oils. Then, of course, you'd have the the organs would be taken out. The natron would go on. The natron would stay on for about 30 to 40 days. Um, And then the bandaging... What's the natron? Oh, natron is basically a salt. So the natron is used... This is where this incredible idea of um, practicality and spirituality come together. So washing the body obviously has practical... Um, connotations, but also it has a lot of ritual that go along goes along with it. Removing the organs again, again, getting rid of any organs that might actually decay and ruin the body. That's very practical. But again, we have this spiritual element, um, and then you you cover the body in this salt natron, and that dries the body again, preservation. And then there's the wrapping. There's a lot of ritual around the wrapping, and then we get to the funeral. Now, we know a little bit about these rituals because we have uh, a Roman period papyrus called the uh, ritual of embalming. Now, even though it's quite late, the Roman period, we're we pretty sure it's based on much earlier papyri. So this, the ritual of embalming sounds like it would tell you how to mummify a body, but it actually tells you the incantations and the rituals that go along. Um, when you're mummifying the body. So it doesn't give you the practical way of mummifying a body, but it tells you the spells and the magic that has to be part of it. So 70 days
0: and then your journey to the afterlife is complete. And so were we're ordinary Egyptians placed in in forms of tombs then? How could you just imagine creating enough space for everybody who needed a niche?
1: No, we're actually looking at a very small part of ancient Egypt. The majority of the ancient Egyptians um if we look we think about ancient Egypt the social hierarchy is a pyramid right at the top you've got the pharaoh the royal family the officials of various importance but then right down at the base of the pyramid about 90% of the population would be agricultural workers and they most of those would not have a tomb but they would have a grave and within that grave you've still got this idea of an afterlife because you find pottery ceramic vessels with you know for food and, and wine, um, you might find jewelry that they take with them. So when we talk about tombs, we really are looking at a small part of the population. It's just we know so much more about that because of the writing, because of the wall paintings, because of the papyrus.
0: Yeah. But uh, and so the regular people would be what mummified but then put in, in a grave.
1: No, they wouldn't be mm. mummified. Oh, they um, wouldn't. Okay. That's only for no, the. not the... intentionally. That's, yeah. uh, again, we're looking at the people who can afford it because when you think about it, mummification was really expensive. Not only have you got the perfumed oils, um, you've got the embalmers, but then you've got an awful lot of linen that you have to provide as bandages. And then you've got the funerary process. So it's a really expensive thing to do. And the, the 90% of Egyptians wouldn't have been able to afford that. So they would have been wrapped in matting or sometimes bandages, usually from um, domestic things like shirts and, and sheets um, made into bandages, and then placed into the hot, dry sand. Now, this hot, hot, dry sand actually mummified bodies naturally. It did exactly the same thing as the artificial mummification, but the organs would have still been in the body, obviously. But quite often you will find natural mummified bodies in, in ancient Egypt as well. So they're turning up sometimes as well. Yeah, definitely. In Amarna, where I've worked under the directorship of um, Dr. Anna Stevens, um, we were digging in a cemetery called the North Tomb Cemetery, which was definitely of people that were not wealthy, probably the poorest of the poor, and they were often wrapped in bandages or matting. But we'd quite often find them, some of them were fully mummified because the hot, dry sand um, dried the body really quickly and that preserved it.
0: You're on Nightlife with Suzanne Hill. Uh, this week's edition of This Mortal Coil, we're talking about the afterlife and death rituals in ancient Egypt. Um, surprising things, Connie, have been found in tombs. Can you tell us about the bouquets that were found in the tomb of Tutankhamun?
1: I think this is one of the most emotive and beautiful things when I, I was looking into it. Um, there's all these, we we know about the food and the wine and the furniture and all and the jewellery, but one of the things that's quite beautiful is the, the number of um, tombs where flowers have been found on the body or part of the um, the actual funerary uh, funerary side of things. So for Tutankhamun, we found, or well, not me personally, if only, um, but there were some beautiful uh, bouquets that were about six foot long, and they were made up of persia and olive leaves. Um, and they were just really quite stunning and these would have been used in the funeral procession but then also on the coffin the second golden coffin had a small a tiny little wreath that I think's been photographed a lot and that was placed on the pharaoh's brow and this consisted of olive leaves blue lotus and heads of cornflower and this tiny little wreath has actually really brought the romantic out in some scholars because they believe that it must have been placed here by Toucan Kamun's distraught widow Ankesen Amun Um, but we don't have any proof of that it's more likely it was put there by a priest but then in the innermost coffin he also had this incredible collar uh, around his neck and this was made up of glass beads and fresh flowers and it was in nine rows and it had berries of wood shade willow leaves petals of blue lotus it had cornflower heads and then halved mandrake fruit um, all put together with olive leaves and white daisy like flowers so this is incredibly intricate and incredibly beautiful but also it can tell us very well um, when someone died because you look at when the this flower flowered and then you kind of count back 70 days and you've got a time of death
0: now, Connie, before we let you go, you've got a talk coming up at the Australian Museum on uh, February 14. It's called Solving a Museum Mystery. What's this mystery that you're going to be talking about?
1: Um, I suppose it's like anything when you start research. We had this beautiful coffin. We have this beautiful coffin at the Chow Chak Wing Museum at the University of Sydney. And it was in our education room. And it really... In some ways was a bit overlooked because we have some beautifully painted coffins. Patty Ashiket is beautiful, Merua. And this coffin was very faded. If you looked really closely, you could see some hieroglyphs beautifully done, but they were very faded. So James Fraser, who was the curator at the time, thought, let's open the lid and see what's in there. According to the database, there was nothing in there. We opened it, it was completely full, filled of a disturbed mummified body, um, and this started this kind of idea that let's find out what we can about this person. So the coffin, um, thanks to the University of Newcastle and the University of Sydney scholars, they actually digitally recolored the coffin, and it was it was absolutely stunning. This brown coffin suddenly became cream with all all the colours of the rainbow used to write the hieroglyphs. But then, looking at what was in the coffin, we found that it was probably a woman. Of about forty, um, she had she'd been mummified to quite a high standard, although completely torn apart by people looking for jewellery. Um, on the coffin, we saw that the, we had texts that told us she had a son. Um, they're doing some amazing work on the bones that remain, and they've actually they're using something called proteomics to look at the bones, and they've actually think they've found some cancer markers. So there's. You know, the mystery was that we didn't know anything and now we actually know quite a lot. And we think what we found is the actual remains of Manithetes herself within her own coffin, which is which is good because that's how it's meant to be. The Egyptians didn't want to be removed from their coffins. They didn't want to be removed from their tombs. So if in some way we've put the bones back in the coffin, in some way, hopefully, um, that That would be something she would want, mm.
0: and um just finally, Rosa down on the corner just wants to know where the rock for building the pyramids comes from.
1: Do you know that one ah oh, look there 's so many pyramids all through Egypt, um, but they could it came as far as Aswan in some places. We were just talking about this the other day about the technology of building the pyramids was awesome in its own way, but then to get the the huge stones. All the way down the Nile River to the building site was a that was another feat of amazing proportions in its in its by itself. And what kind of stone is it? Ah, uh, there's it's granite. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of granite in some. Um, as I said, there's lots of different pyramids. Some of the pyramids were just built with after the big pyramids, which was Old Kingdom. They're the pyramids of Giza. A lot of pyramids were built with smaller stone and with mud brick. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go, Rosa,
0: as far as, uh, as one. Connie, thank you so much for joining us um, to talk us through some of the, the rituals associated with the afterlife in ancient Egypt and enjoy going back to see the exhibition again.
1: I will, and we've only just touched on it, so um, I do recommend people go to Canberra or to the Australian Museum. There's a lot more to learn. It's so complicated, but it, it's fascinating. Once You get hooked.
0: Right, thanks Connie Uh, Connie Lord, Dr Connie Lord is a forensic Egyptologist and if you're interested in her talk and you happen to be in Sydney uh, the 14th of February um, midday to one, it's called Solving a Museum Mystery and you can go to the Australian Museum website for more details
1: This is Nightlife with
0: Suzanne Hill